you're listening to the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast, the Bitcoin podcast for OGs and intermediaries. Make sure you subscribe, leave a comment, and like this episode. Also, read the new BTCT KVR magazine. This episode is sponsored by Wasabi Wallet, Crypto Steel, Shop in a Bit, and Sadodime. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. Welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover Podcast. I am Vlad, your Bitcoin influencer's influencer, and I'm live here today with Jameson Lop, who is the CTO of Casa and has been with the company for about four years now. No, five years. And I haven't interviewed him since he started at Casa. And it's pretty interesting that we get to talk after all this time, after so much stuff has happened. And yeah, welcome, Jameson. Good to be back. Well, technically, you're not back because previously you were on the Crypto Insider whatever interviews. Now you're on the Bitcoin Takeover podcast. So technically, it's your first appearance and it's sweaty in here. It's super hot. I could not turn on a fan because it affects the quality of the audio. So if I start sweating, just like Richard Nixon during his debate with JFK, then sorry. Well, we all have to make sacrifices. Well, speaking of sacrifices, Jameson, I think that since you left BitGo, it became a much bigger company. Now they custody mm. the funds of MicroStrategy, if I'm not mistaken, and possibly also El Salvador. I heard a rumor. Do you ever regret not staying with BitGo? Uh, no, I mean, you know, I left for a number of reasons, but one of the big ones was, uh, just that, uh, my sleep was being affected. Uh, you know, I was, I was running a lot of the infrastructure there and as we you know, started to expand and, uh, added support for many new networks, it, uh, you know, ran into a lot of new edge cases and, and issues with basically maintaining the complexity. So, uh, you know, I was I was kind of there when we had added support for a lot of things, but we hadn't necessarily grown that part of the team uh, commensurately to make it so that you could you know, spread the load more. But um, no, they uh, they seem to be doing well, and I certainly wish them the best, and I you know, have my incentives to want them to continue to to do well. But you know, I. I kind of, I kind of took it as an opportunity to pivot and you know continue to use a lot of the knowledge that I had gained while I was there, but apply it to more of a you know, retail individual focus. So you know, I felt like Bitco did a pretty good job, kind of raising the bar for you know, enterprise hot wallet security type of stuff. Um, I felt like there was room to try to do the same thing on the individual side. And that's really what we've been focusing on for the past five years at CASA is, you know, helping individuals help themselves and be their own bank. Yeah, it's very hard for me to not notice that there is a certain similarity. It seems like BitGo does multi-sig custody for companies, corporations, nation states and whatever. And CASA does multi-sig for individuals. So you're not quite... 100% custodians, but you do hold some keys and you're more like enablers of inheritance or something. So to some degree, you're doing the same job, but for a different type of clients. Yeah. You know, also as I was leaving, uh, Bitco had already spent the past year or two 
ramping up on the legal side to also offer full custody services. And so I think that's a pretty decent chunk of their business now where they're actually taking custody on behalf of uh, a lot of whales and enterprises. And, um, you know, that was something that was less interesting to me, though, obviously, there's demand, there's a market for it. And I wanted to continue you know, pushing forward in what I believe is the harder path, which is getting people to take responsibility and uh, you know take custody and do what I think is best, not only for themselves, but for you know, the entire ecosystem is, is kind of pushing back against the the looming threat of convenience that I believe is a systemic threat and you it's a buzzword but you know it, it does create this centralizing force of uh, resulting in more of the value in the ecosystem being concentrated in a smaller number of hands which I think is just bad in general for all of us yeah, I very much agree with you. And I was going to ask you, what's new with Casa? Because when the company first launched, it was super cool. I remember Jeremy Welch when he was the CEO. He was on all the podcasts, except for mine, for some reason. But he was on all the podcasts and he was talking about this cool device, the Casa node that was supposed to enable sovereignty very easily. I give credit to Casa for popularizing the idea of node in a box. I think companies today like Umbrel and Nodal and Raspi Blitz owed their success to the fact that Casa popularized that concept. And I, I'm an owner of the first generation Casa node, which was the Raspberry Pi 3, which wasn't very good, not very slick. It was in the next year that you that the Raspberry Pi 4 launched and you also created a revision that was short-lived. And what's new? Because I think that was the coolest phase of Casa. The first year when you had the node and when you had this plan to renew the hardware of your customers every year or every couple of years, and then you mm -hmm. dropped it and decided to go full software support and provide multi-sigs for customers. And to some people, I, I guess I, I kind of lost interest in the company after that point, but obviously you have had clients and you were able to scale the operations and grow past that point. So what's been going on with Casa? What's new? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people, for whatever reason, well, I think it's due to the popularity, but a lot of people actually misunderstand the timeline of CASA and that actually in 2018, we initially launched with our multi-sig self-custody product. Now, at the time, um, we, we took kind of a Tesla approach where... Uh, it was actually $10,000 a year, you know, ultra high premium uh, whale client only type of product. And then over time, we've gone down market. Now, it was, I guess, a year, year and a half after that was when we launched the node. So, you know, the idea was really, you know, Casa as a full stack uh, self sovereignty type of service. And you know, I think we did successfully make it a lot easier for people to run Bitcoin and Lightning nodes, especially back then. You know, Lightning was even more of a, a beta type of product than it is today. There was a lot more rough edges, and what we really found, and you know, kind of what what people really want us to explain is like why did that product not last? And it was a culmination of several factors. Uh, one of them which if you look at the sort of node in a box history, you know, Casa was not the first and we certainly won't be the last uh, company to offer this type of product. Uh, there were at least two or three. I know that I had, I had a bit nodes actually had a device for a few years that they offered. Um, and then there was, uh, I think bit seed. Uh, I think John light was a part of that project uh, for a few years. And, and what you find is normally these node-in-a-box projects, they last for a few years and then they tend to sort of die off. And there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one is it's a very low margin business, right? So um, you know, you're typically using some sort of Raspberry Pi or similar mini computer device as the hardware, probably going to run you 
two to three hundred dollars minimum just for the base components off the shelf. Then you're trying to build some nice uh, software and interface that you can throw onto that to make it easier for people to use. So, you know, how much are you actually feasibly going to be able to charge for it? You know, once it starts going above five hundred dollars. Uh, people, the, the, the size of the market of people that are willing to pay that is vanishingly small, you know, probably fewer than 10,000 people total. And it's mostly hobbyists and tinkerers. So uh, we ended up bumping up against this total size of the market issue. Um, you know, we are a, a venture-backed company, so we are seeking growth. And so when you, you see that your, your product kind of stalls out and hits a wall and there doesn't seem to be much more room for growth, that's always a red flag. Another thing, uh, and this is similar to and, and related to the, the cost of the margin uh, that I was talking about, is it's obviously the cost is not just with the hardware. There's the you know, software engineering cost to make something that's nice and usable for less technical people. And then for us, uh, one of the bigger surprises was the cost on the support side. And one of the big reasons for that is, and I've, I've actually given entire presentations about this, um, Basically, when you are deploying hardware into unknown environments and unknown networks, there's a huge surface area of, of unanticipated sort of edge cases and things that end up going wrong. And that combined with the fact that you know, we had no insight or control over these devices made it very difficult for us to get you know, debugging information in many cases to help people. So, um, you know, worst case scenario, if, if someone couldn't even access the device over their network to get debug logs off of it, then it's like we have to walk people through figuring out how to how to hook a monitor and keyboard up to it and start running command line instructions. And, you know, this it gets really gnarly, um, especially when you're trying to sell something to less technical people who probably aren't familiar with doing that type of stuff. So, you know, the, the short version is it just, it was, it was a great idea. It's very difficult to uh, pull that off and scale it as a profitable business. Yeah, I remember at one point you were even giving rewards for people keeping their nodes online and there was this application yep. or something that was sending them lightning rewards. And I mm -hmm. think it was too ahead of its time. This was in early 2019, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah. I remember being super excited about the Costa node and thinking about all the possibilities. I remember Jack Dorsey getting one and publishing a picture of it. And at the time, he was still the CEO of Twitter. And it was a big mm -hmm. deal because he was not fully involved in Bitcoin. He was just dipping his toes. So it, it was a huge deal at the time, the Costa node. It's kind of unfortunate that... I think the first iteration was not super reliable and it, I wasn't sure. So half the time I wasn't sure if it's loading or if it's stuck. And I think that was the biggest issue in terms of user experience. And also I remember taking it out of the box and it had this sheet of paper that was saying, go to start.casa.com or something like that. But in reality, the, the URL was different. So by the time the box got shipped, you had changed the website for your documentation and stuff. So it wasn't, the, you tried very hard. So I can give credit for all of the Apple packaging and presentation and the fact that you made it so easy and convenient and you basically gave birth to an entire industry of node-in-a-box devices, which existed prior to Casa, but it wasn't this big. You, yeah, you I mean, a lot of people to continue this pursuit and try to create more efficient node in a box concepts. We were basically trying to take our ethos of uh, improving usability for Bitcoin tooling. So, you know, running nodes, uh, especially lightning stuff uh, and all the complexities around channel management and whatnot. Uh, it can be overwhelming for people. So the, you know, the, the idea, which is what we started off with self-custody is, you know, 
the the promise of self custody uh, is quite great, but to do it right and to avoid all of the potential foot guns that you know people can basically get themselves in trouble due to ignorance, uh, it it necessitates a much more friendly user experience really to guide people down the right path. And so we were just sort of applying that same type of approach to nodes, uh, but of course they're just mountains and mountains of more complexity when you have this additional you know, piece of networked hardware that you have to manage and you know as it as it stands today you know we still have to deal with some complexity and some things that are outside of our control even with our self custody service you know this is by design you know casa is architected to eliminate single points of failure. So that means you know we don't want to have a threshold of keys that could be used to either prevent someone from spending their money or to spend their money without their consent. And so as a result, that means people are using um, key management devices from other companies, other vendors that we have no control over. So this does add uh, a certain level of complexity and sort of ongoing maintenance where we have to make sure that everything that we're doing is is staying in sync with with what the the rest of the hardware and firmware and the, the whole software stack that our clients are using is is a constantly moving target yeah uh, i understand that and before i ask you the next question let me play an advertisement Wasabi Wallet is unfairly private. It's the most advanced and most used Bitcoin privacy wallet with half a million downloads across Windows, Mac OS, and Linux, as well as thousands of fresh new Bitcoins getting mixed every month. Wasabi makes use of the new generation Wabi Sabi engine to create mega coin joins, thus mixing your Bitcoins with those of hundreds of other users. For amounts lower than 0.01 BTC and remixes, you pay no coordination fee. Even if you don't use CoinJoins, Wasabi Wallet has a native Tor integration and downloads block filters to help you keep your network level and public key privacy. Download Wasabi Wallet for free today at wasabiwallet.io and experience the future of Bitcoin privacy. What do you think about Wasabi, Jameson? It's interesting. I don't really do much coin joining myself. Um, I I have a sort of multi-faceted approach to Bitcoin privacy, depending on my needs. But um, you know, I'm I'm somewhat reluctant to coin join at least any funds I have that I might want to send to an exchange because I don't want my you know, centralized exchange accounts to get shut down. Um, the Really, the one time that I would use CoinJoin is if I need to make a payment that's large enough that I don't have like enough non-KYC Bitcoin. Um, and so... If I'm doing that payment and just sending it to someone, then you know, sending it through a coin join first, just so that they couldn't see or try to figure out through on-chain analysis like what the the rest of my wallet looks like. That's the primary use case that I have for it. But of course, there's many reasons why uh, people may want to be joining their coins. Yeah, in my case, I receive donations, and I don't, I have no idea where they come from, and I don't want to know where they come from. So maybe. Some may argue that it's worse if I coin join them if these donations are coming from exchanges, but I don't have the time to check. I don't want to know. And I can yeah. move the coins between wallets a few times so that blockchain analysis that's being employed by exchanges will think that the coins have changed owner or something. But anyway, I was going to ask you about Casa and I think the most common question that you get from people who are not certain if they want to use their service is why would anyone use Casa instead of setting up Electrum in five minutes with a couple of hardware wallets? What is the benefit? 
Well, there are several. Uh, you know, for one, Casa is not just a wallet. You know, the vast majority of wallets out there are, of course, free to use. Uh, it's sort of a do-it-yourself type of thing, and that's great. You know, I think if people are you know, sufficiently knowledgeable and sophisticated, then rolling your own is certainly feasible if you put in enough time and effort. Uh, but you know, Casa. One of our things, you know, we we come with a pretty slick mobile app that really guides people through the whole process, so they don't necessarily have to know all the intricacies of what they're doing to both set up the multisig and then to maintain it and have backups. So one particular point that comes up a lot with regard to multisig. You know, we're we're trying to set these up to help people put themselves in a very robust position so that they can make mistakes. You know, so that if anything goes wrong, because something probably will go wrong over a long enough time frame, that that itself is not um, triggering a catastrophic loss. And one thing, for example, that comes up that is easy for people to not understand if if they don't understand you know how multisig works under the hood. Is is actually somewhat similar to a problem that uh, I see people get into even with single sig, which is not understanding what's required to actually recover your wallet if you should lose keys or data. So you know, when you have a multi sig setup, yeah, sure, you can create a two of three or a three of five or whatever, and if you lose one of those keys, you know you can still spend the money. But that is assuming that you still have the the wallet itself constructed and, and stored somewhere. So basically, if you lose any of the public keys that go to that multi-sig, that could actually be a catastrophic loss. So. Uh, we could go into the details why, but basically when, when you're spending from a multi-sig, you have to provide all of the public key information, um, which means you know, if you had, let's say, Electrum or Spectre or Sparrow or whatever set up and it was a two of three and you lost one of those keys, uh, if you did not also have the wallet descriptor or basically all of the public information with the extended public keys, the derivation pass, the script type, uh, these are all things that are required to be able to reconstruct and then spend from that multi-sig wallet, then um, unfortunately you would not be able to actually spend your money. Uh, so. One of the benefits that you get here is uh, Casa basically helps you with automatic backups. Uh, not only with one of your keys gets this uh, automatic encrypted uh, two of two uh, type of cloud backup. It uh, also inherently backs up your public information as well. And you know, we send you a copy of it at the time that you set up your your wallet, but you can also Get another copy of it whenever you want. You know, Casa. As long as Casa doesn't go away, uh, even if Casa does go away, we have provided people with what we call sovereign recovery instructions, which includes that information. And you know, as I said, the, the whole idea is to get rid of single points of failure. So, uh, you know, we have an entire website devoted to this of like basically everything that could go wrong. Um. The, the service support is another big aspect of it. Like I said, a lot of these wallets out there, they are basically do it yourself. You know, you might get community level support. So whoever is you know, volunteering to, to help out on a forum or email list or whatever, uh, what are you paying for at Casa? What you're really paying for, especially at the premium tiers, is a level of customer service where you can actually call us on the phone and you know talk to a real human, uh, you know set up a, a video chat if you want, and and get hands-on personalized support, not just um, you know random tier one email support where, uh, especially if it's a bull market going on, you might not get a response for weeks. Yeah, I was showing the page that shows the membership types. You have a free plan, you have a standard one, and the premium one. 
there seems to be quite a gap between them. The free one, of course, is $0, and all you get yep. is, I guess, access to the wallet. And with the standard one, it's not the one that gives you free hardware wallets, right? It's the premium one. Correct. That does that. Yeah, the standard is, uh, it's more of a do-it-yourself with email support. I believe our, our SLA, you know, turnaround time for emails is generally one to two business days, though, you know, it's, it's normally on the order of hours, especially right now, since things are pretty quiet. And like I said, the premium plan, yeah, you, you get a nicer um, onboarding package and more hand-holding, but what you're really paying for is... Uh, both responsive and personalized uh, support. So, you know, if you need something, if there's an emergency, you can you know, literally contact us um, within a matter of minutes, uh, at least during during the business week, and and we have you know emergency sort of twenty four seven lines as well. Yeah, uh, I think it's certainly interesting what's going on here. And I noticed that Ethereum has a central place on your website where you can learn what it is. So how did that happen? How did you switch from a Bitcoin-only company, which was also planning to support Litecoin on the node in the beginning because of some investor, I guess? And then you dropped it and said you're Bitcoin-only. And then you said, let's also add Ethereum. And I guess this is also a nice segue into your article about Bitcoin maximalism and its origins. Right. Uh, well, so once again, this is an interesting long history that I think a lot of people have missed, uh, mainly because you know we were so small in 2018, uh, 2019. When we first rolled out the multi-sig app, in 2018, we actually had a uh, beta Ethereum support in the mobile app, but uh, we ended up removing it because we just didn't get much demand for it at the time. Um, I'm just trying to remember about Litecoin stuff. I don't, I don't even remember uh, what we said or didn't say around Litecoin stuff. Obviously, nothing ever happened with Litecoin support. Um, didn't have a ton of demand for that and, and still don't today. But then what we saw happening over the past couple of years is more demand, you know, some from current customers, but really a lot of this is driven, of course, by our sales team. And, you know, they take notes whenever we lose a deal. And we started seeing a, a, a pattern. And the pattern was basically, look, I'm invested in a number of different assets. And especially if you don't have Ethereum and Ethereum-related assets, then your service is not particularly helpful for me because then I have to go find a similar service somewhere else. Um, you know, people people want convenience. And as I said at the very beginning, you know, we're, we're kind of fighting against this, uh, this convenience centralizing force. And so it was, it was pretty upsetting to see a number of people saying, you know what, in terms of convenience, the easiest thing for me to do with regard to custody is to literally just give it to, you know, a trusted third party custodian because they support absolutely everything. And, you know, I won't have to go around maintaining, you know, multiple accounts, multiple wallets and so on and so forth. So this uh, for us, of course, has been market driven uh, based on you know, what people are telling us they want. And uh, of course, you know, as expected, we get uh, some pushback from people who you know, completely hate the idea of Ethereum, want nothing to do with it. And uh, those folks are, of course, welcome not to use it. You know, we, uh, we have a toggle in the app. You can turn it on, you can turn it off, you can do what you want with it. Uh, you can use Casa for Bitcoin only, you could use it for Ethereum only. Uh, we do anticipate adding stable coin support for too long because that's really the next greatest thing that has the most demand. Interesting. And something that I wanted to ask you before we get into Bitcoin maximalism, is I guess a question that you don't get too often. What happens if, for example, I set up a premium account and I pay $2,100 for one year 
and then mm -hmm. I stop paying. Are you going to throw away the keys or what? what's going to happen? <laughs> uh, no. Um, well, you know, you hold the keys. So because of the way that it's architected, Casa can't do anything. You know, you, your money just sits there. Um, from the application standpoint, what would happen is that uh, the app goes into basically what we call withdraw only mode. And so, you know, if your membership has expired, the only thing the app allows you to do is to completely sweep the wallet and send the funds to an external address. Okay, that's less evil or harsh than I expected. <laughs> like usually there are these asterisks, asterisks like lawyer mentions that, okay, if you don't pay, we're going to shut off this function and you have to pay again. So basically... What's the incentive for someone to continue other than receiving support? Because you set up the customer and then they can just keep on benefiting from that setup without paying for a renewal. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, this is actually something we should probably hit on more often. Um, well, there's a couple of things. Uh, for one, of course, you would lose access to the CASA recovery key. So if, if things started to go wrong with your other keys, and you got down to a point where you needed a signature from the CASA recovery key, I think that would be a big incentive for you to renew with us. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, this is, it, you know, multi-sig is a more complex type of setup. And one thing that I've certainly learned over the years is that it's not a set it and forget it type of operation. And I, I kind of hinted at this earlier where I was talking about how there is this, you know, these additional levels of complexity with you know, managing the, the hardware and the software libraries, you know, basically all of the pieces of hardware and software that you're using uh, as constituent pieces of your distributed multi-sig wallet. And uh, the short version is that this is why one of the core pieces of functionality that we've had in the app from the very beginning is what we call health checks. And that's basically, um, you know, every six months or so, you should probably be interacting with each of these keys. And uh, a health check in our app, basically, it's you know doing a Bitcoin signed message. So it's just proving that you still have the ability to cryptographically sign with your keys. You don't necessarily have to sign a transaction and you know move money around. Though um, what happens in the app is that you know if you have signed with a key for any reason, whether it's just a message or for a transaction, then uh, the timer kind of starts. And if, if you go six months and you haven't done any sort of activity, then we start uh, annoying you with some warnings of saying, hey, uh, you should probably do a health check just to make sure everything is good. And so what am I getting to? Well, you know, we have had some tenuous situations with some customers over the years who didn't do their health checks and went you know, two, three, four years without ever touching any of their keys. And then you know, they come back after many years and they start realizing, oh, all my firmware is out of date and it's not compatible with this uh, you know, software library, or maybe even the firmware is so out of date that I need to uh, up, upgrade it past a version at which it wipes the key off of the hardware due to some security vulnerability that the, the firmware update is patching. Uh, so you know, there, basically there are things that can go wrong if you're not... Um, you're staying on top of the health of your key set. You know, this is one of the trade-offs where uh, multi-sig is more complex. It requires a bit more touch points. But if you're staying on top of it, you end up with a more robust uh, distributed setup. But it, it certainly requires more work than just um, putting 12 words on a metal plate and burying it in the ground for 30 years. Yep. I guess I have another question for you regarding the difference between multi-sig and Shamir as described by Slip39. But before that, let me play another ad. And just for the record, the owner of this company is mad at your review. And we can also talk about your metal plate reviews. But let me sure, play sure. 
CryptoSeal is the original Bitcoin cold storage backup, and it's been innovating self-custody since 2013. Designed and manufactured in Europe from the finest and most resistant stainless steel, the CryptoSeal cassette and the CryptoSeal capsule are industry standards. These cold storage devices are made to resist house fires, extreme floods, and physical shocks. You can also use CryptoSeal to store your important passwords, BIP39 passphrase, or Noster private key. Buy your crypto steel today from cryptosteel.com and use promo code BTCTKVR to get a 10% discount. Crypto steel. Secure your Bitcoin like an OG. I hope you like the pump at Loomdark Girls. Oh, you're muted. Sorry. Yeah, uh, it's a. Uh... I can't say I'm familiar with them, but uh, that's very professional. Oh, it's an old meme. You should look it up. Uh, Pump it, Loom Dark. It's pretty insane. Basically, someone, after I posted this, someone accused me of promoting prostitution. And I told them that I apologize the next time I'm going to get real prostitutes. But anyway, where was I getting? Yeah. Slip 39 versus multi-sig. How would you describe the difference and why should anyone still use multi-sig? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Shamir's secret sharing can make sense for backups. It's not something that I think you would want to use in an ongoing basis. Uh, and we do have a, a lengthy blog post, I think, from 2019 or 2020, where we you know, compare and contrast some of the issues with secret sharing. Um, you know, one difference is that with Shamir secret sharing, you basically end up having to reconstitute uh, all the keys in a single location. Uh, so you know, you, you, it really, it is designed for basically single signature setups. Uh, we're not a big fan of single signature setups or whenever you have a threshold of signing keys in one geographic location or on one device or whatever, just because that means, you know, if something has gone wrong there, it's a potential catastrophic loss. Uh, you also don't have auditability in terms of, you know, let's say, Let's say you had a Shamir secret sharing scheme backup, and and then one day you wake up and all of your money is gone. You know how do you figure out what was compromised? The Shamir secret sharing, this you know reconstitution is done completely offline and privately, and you have no way of knowing which shares were actually used to reconstitute the key. So one of the nice things about multisig is that, you know, in the event that something goes wrong, you can at least have some um, auditability where it's literally on the blockchain where you can see, you know, which keys were used to sign a given transaction. Um, it's also, you know, this may change, but at least for the time being, it's trickier to modify in the sense that you know we have this concept of key rotation in Casa, and that's basically that you know you're you're not married to any one of your keys in your key set. You should consider them somewhat expendable, and you know assume that they could be compromised. Something could go wrong, but. If something does go wrong, it's quite simple in our app to just tap on that key and mark it as compromised and buy another hardware device off the shelf and we'll walk you through your rotating your funds over, basically swapping out that key. You know, if you want to change one of your shards in the Shamir Secrets sharing setup, or you or you want to, you know, change the sort of M of N, like the threshold uh, and how distributed it is, then you basically have to start all over from the beginning and um, you know, change out all of those pieces of the backup. Uh, that's just a few things off the top of my head. But you know, basically, it's, I think it's a bit more uh, rigid, whereas multi-sig is a bit more flexible. When you said that the public information displayed on the blockchain can change, you referred to taproot multi-sigs, right? 
well, really any uh, any type of multi-sig that you're doing on the blockchain, you know, all of all of those public keys that are being used, uh, and all of the the relevant signatures, you know, you can see you know which public keys they correspond to. Okay, now let's get into before we get to Bitcoin maximalism, let's get into your reviews on metal plates that you publish, I guess, every year. You look into new products. You also do benchmarks with hardware wallets, which I think are interesting. And they remind me of the computer magazines I used to buy back in the day to see tests and benchmarks and all sorts of parameters that I can compare, except that you take them to some extreme levels and you even smash mm -hmm. them. You even try all sorts of situations that maybe are not realistic but can happen maybe one in 10 million cases so what inspires you to pursue that methodology and also why did you give crypto steel a bad review because you did not break it you just bent it okay uh so well for one you know because i get questions from people saying you know, what's the best metal backup uh and i needed to be able to you know quantitatively be able to defend i think my assertions and also you know at the time when i started doing it i really didn't know uh i just wanted to you know be adversarial and try to figure out you know exactly what level of stress is required to cause these things to fail um, so the, the takeaway from, I think I've tested like 70 or 75 devices at this point. Um, and the, the table takeaway is to keep it simple. And by keep it simple, I, I basically mean like the less parts there are involved, the less potential points of failure there are. So my experience has been that the, the best and most robust forms of backups are the ones that are literally just one big hunk of metal. And then even going further than that, there's a question of how do you actually inscribe the data onto the metal, whether it's etching, uh, hammering, you know, stamping, or doing a simple dot. In my experience, the best uh, was actually acid etching, but I only ever found one kit that did that. Uh, of course, you can always do it yourself uh, if you're able to get like some wax and a nine volt battery and uh, some saline solution and you know, electrodes and stuff. But other than that, the, the best uh, format and really easiest format seems to be the simple uh, straight punch and you know, just putting a, a divot into uh, a grid somewhere. Um, the, the short version of the problems that I had with the crypto steel and related this tile. One, yeah. So I will say I like the crypto steel capsule more than the cassette. I think, uh, where the capsule succeeds where the, the cassette tends to fail in the sense that certain types of, of heat application and crushing application in my tests would deform the cassette enough that the tiles would be able to get loose and fall out of it. And then, you know, you have a big problem of either you've lost the tiles or even if the tiles all stayed in place, you, you find yourself faced with a sort of a combinatorial complexity of trying to figure out how to put them back in the right order. Um, so the, the, the crypto steel capsule is better at, at keeping you know all of that data together because of course it is literally encapsulating it. So even if it gets uh, bent, uh, it's most likely all of those tiles will stay in the same place. The one thing that I ran into with it is that uh, you know if it did get bent, you're gonna have to get some heavy equipment to be able to cut it back open and preferably delicately enough not to destroy the tiles that are inside. Yeah, you are not able in your test to break this, but you're able to bend it. Yeah. And I think you gave it a four-star review specifically because you said that it's like a Schrodinger's cat situation. You are not even to remove it to figure out if the tiles are still intact, but at the same time, it, it didn't break. So it, yep. it was an interesting situation. At the same time, you got asked the question, who the hell tries to bend this? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, why do I do a, it's a 20 ton hydraulic press that I use and what am I trying to simulate there? 
Um, I think the most likely type of scenario would be, you know, someone where they have stored it inside of a large building and then there's a building collapse, whether that's due to fire or earthquake or flood or whatever. Now, you know, these are extreme situations and, you know, many people may not even be storing their backup in a place that could be susceptible to that type of condition. But, you know, this is really me trying to put the data out there so that people know, you know, if they are exposed to that certain type of stress, you know, should they expect to be able to recover the data? Okay, let's get into maximalism because this is my favorite topic of all of them. You spent so much time documenting and writing a long article about the history of maximalism. You gave credit to the best-known Romanian Bitcoiner, who is Mircea Popescu, mm -hmm. and you presented him as one of the first people to express Bitcoin-only opinions in a very toxic way that were dismissive yep. of everyone and everything else. And I think you did a tremendous job. Congratulations on that one. Thanks. For someone who doesn't have maybe two hours to read that entire blog post, could you please make a short summary of what Bitcoin maximalism is and the different phases through which it went? Yeah, uh, ooh, it is, you know, a lengthy, like decade plus long history. But, um, you know, maximalism really started out as a rejection of you know, people trying to print their own money with cheap copied projects. You know, in the early days, there was Bitcoin and then there was just altcoins. And um, you know, all of the altcoins for the first few years of Bitcoin's existence were literal you know, copy-paste clones of the Bitcoin repository, you know, just tweaking a few parameters so, so that it cre created a, a different network with, you know, trivially different attributes. Um, I remember in, in the, the early days, a lot of people were trying to pump alternative networks that literally the only difference was the mining algorithm. And they were treating it like somehow, you know, the mining algorithm itself would you know, create value or that people would care about that. But, you know, in reality, no one really cares what uh, mining algorithm powers a network other than the miners themselves. Um, you know, then you know things started to get uh, a bit more complicated when we, we saw some alternative, you know, from scratch code bases come out. Whether that was uh, you know the crypto note stuff and uh, Monero, um, uh, Ethereum, of course, which ended up becoming the sort of predominant altcoin, and um, you know, we saw more you know, rejection of the sort of kitchen sink, trying to solve everything with a blockchain uh, type of approach to this stuff. And, you know, it became more complex because a lot of these projects were really obfuscating various uh, centralizing factors uh, and, and you know, control of their their networks and the governance process and whatnot um uh, i think there was you remember was it dash that had like master nodes or something oh yeah you know, it had this kind of it was kind of like a fake form of staking like there's so many different kinds of staking out there and, and staking is not always the same type of thing i mean we've even seen though wasn't it like richard hart and his hex thing he claimed that you were staking hex but it wasn't even staking it was really just like locking up your money for a long period of time. You know, things have gotten a lot more complicated and people are like overloading terms, uh, you know, basically trying to make it sound like they're one thing when they're really another, you know, it's a lot of marketing hype and it's, it can be hard to cut through the bullshit. Um, I think things really came to a head though during the scaling wars. And you know, I think that's when, you know, toxic maximalism really had its time to shine. Uh, and, and that's when I think toxic maximalism probably makes the most sense. Uh, it's when someone is trying to you know, undermine the Bitcoin network itself, you know, from within, uh, trying to, to make contentious changes and, uh, you're kind of fighting against that. And so, you know, we, we saw, um, a whole new 
group of people kind of rise up in prominence during the scaling debates. Uh, many of them got worn out after several years of this stuff. And you know, once things calmed down, especially once uh, all of the Bitcoin forks had really proven themselves uh, not to have staying power, you know, things calmed, calmed down for a few years. And then I think it got interesting again around the pandemic time because you know, Bitcoin itself didn't really have any sort of existential crisis going on, but a lot of people suddenly found themselves, you know, sitting at home with not a lot to do, and a lot, a lot of new people came into Bitcoin at the time, and and we had this kind of, uh, kind of like a holdover, you know, from the folks who who found toxic maximalism to be, um, uh an interesting part of their lives during the scaling debates, like people kind of going back to that and, and kind of indoctrinating a new set of people into a lot of the, the tenets around toxic maximalism. And so it got interesting because a lot of those newcomers, they ended up, they ended up kind of absorbing the memetics of toxic maximalism without necessarily knowing all of the details and history around like you know, where those things came from. So uh, it, that itself got its own kind of viral effect. And it's it's been interesting to see how a lot of those talk, talking points have been you know, amplified and reiterated and sometimes slightly been like dumbed down over the years uh, to the point where, you know, it can be frustrating sometimes for the, the folks who've been around for a long time to, to try to interact with the, the newcomers. Yeah, I like to joke sometimes that we want mass adoption, but we don't want to deal with the masses. It's a mm -hmm. paradox, I guess. But I got to play another ad before we move on. Remember the paper wallet? Ah, uh, yes. The good old days when you printed your Bitcoin private key on an offline computer? It was so fun, but not really easy and totally not secure. Today, we have Sadodime, a chip card that acts just like your good old paper wallet, but with all the modern security features and top-notch functionality. It turns your Bitcoin into a bearer asset, which you can easily trade in person. Thanks to NFC, you can use the Sadodime card with your smartphone. Creating a new pair of Bitcoin keys takes just two swipes, check your balance in real time, create multiple key pairs. Whenever you want, you can reveal your Bitcoin wallet's private key with just a single click. The simple uncluttered interface lets you quickly see if a key pair has been unsealed. Finally, the cold storage you've been looking for. Available now on sadodime.io. I like those girls. Anyway, on the topic of maximalism, what, what I want to say is that you're right about this. There seems to be this rising trend of maximalism becoming a lifestyle. And it's not just the monetary affinity itself. It's also the merchandise. It's the products that you buy to signal to the others that you're part of the group. And I did notice that there are some products that get endorsed and promoted as part of that. I wanted to call it a cult, but I don't want to part of that group. But it seems to be very American to some extent. Like we Europeans are much more reasonable, but Americans, they read the Bitcoin standard and it seems like they find a new purpose in life. And they, they, they're like, yeah, this is my new identity. This is what I want to do now. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I haven't tried to do a sort of demographic breakdown, but you know, there are also we're seeing other types of culture kind of seep into it, and it may be more American. I've certainly seen more sort of like American conservative values coming up. You know, whether that's you know various like Christian uh, morality stuff, or um, you know you could call it like right-wing conservative politics. That's really tricky though, because a lot of people, you know, paint me as a right-winger, uh, but I'm an, you know, an avid anarcho-capitalist. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not a winger of, but that's of any kind. right-winger because left means more state intervention, right means no state intervention. So you are a true right-winger. In, in a sense, though, right? But they always mean Republican, or at least in America, when you get called a right winger, it always means you're like a Trump supporter or whatever, which is, you know, it's ridiculous. Uh, but, you know, that's something that I think American libertarians have had to deal with for, 
many years. But yeah, I mean the you know the maximalism thing. Um, that's you know it was like a thirty-page article I ended up writing because it is so complicated and it, it really is. It's not a technical thing. It is. It's more of a sociological phenomenon. And I think that you know when you unwind it, it does make sense of of how we got to where we are today. And and I think you just have to ask yourself the question of you know do you want to you know, put yourself in that ideological camp or are you more open-minded? And so. I think I've always been more open-minded. I'm a technologist first. Uh, I'm interested in using whatever the tools are that I think can best empower me and other people. And I get plenty of flack from you know, maximalists or otherwise in the community whenever I mention anything other than Bitcoin, because I think that that particular tool might actually be best for some other use case. So many people made fun of you for that running grin tweet. <laughs> years ago like yep, they still yep. use it as a way to prove that okay this guy failed so much he had such mm -hmm. a bad idea at the time to run this client but just for the record i can make fun all day of these people but i agree with about 90 percent of what they're saying and i i also believe that ethereum is a scam because of its launch and because of its incentives and the way that mm -hmm. it's centralized and uses this political game to appear that it's decentralized, to have good PR. Nobody blamed it for increasing the prices of video cards for gamers. Gamers were hmm. blaming Bitcoin, actually, which was stupid because nobody minds with GPUs anymore. But I can understand that there are some exchanges that do stuff and there are some business people that do stuff with what used to be colored coins and counterparty. Initially, Ethereum started as a Bitcoin 2.0 proposal. And a lot of people don't remember that, that in 2014, 2015, there was this idea that we should do much more on the blockchain. We should create assets that get traded in a decentralized way, just like you trade Bitcoin. And Ethereum is an implementation on that idea. So initially, it was like an extension of what Bitcoin is doing. I can agree that it had a 72 million, 72 million ETH mine. And it's kind of rigged in terms of economics, but people find it useful for whatever, putting NFTs on it for fun stuff that you, you can do on Bitcoin technically, but you get very much frowned upon if you do it on Bitcoin, just like you did your wizard. Yeah. And I mean, that's what I think we should expect. You know, this is a, a space of permissionless innovation. And people are going to have demands for functionality that probably shouldn't be on Bitcoin, and that's okay. So, you know, if you don't want that stuff on Bitcoin, it seems kind of silly to be yelling at people for doing it on other networks. <laughs> there was a fun moment in 2021 when Counterparty made a comeback and rare Pepe's were all the rage because everyone was searching for the historic NFTs. And they found Rare Prepe and Spells of Genesis, which are some of the oldest. And it was interesting to see that people were once again creating counterparty NFTs. And the people who have been doing this for years were getting attention once again. And people were like, you should not do this on Bitcoin. And then, okay, but you want me to do it on a shitcoin? No, that's evil. You're giving the shitcoin volume and you're giving it use cases don't touch it. Okay, but how are you supposed to do this? And they don't have an answer for this. They say, okay, wait for RGB. And I can agree that RGB is promising, but it's not ready yet. Same for Taproot Assets, formerly Taro. I'm not sure if there's a solution for this, but we have to agree that it's permissionless tech. So uh, as you proved with your ordinal inscription with the wizard, you can use Bitcoin for whatever you want as long as you pay the fee. And we, we have, I guess, ideologically to keep it at that. Yep. Bitcoin is for enemies. So support your enemies. <laughs> Are you the enemy, Jameson? I, I try not to be, but uh, I think it's uh, it's pretty much inevitable. You know, whenever you have a large enough number of people paying attention to you, someone will find reasons to declare you to be an enemy. Yeah, unfortunately, you just told me that you have to go. I I made a mistake. I didn't distinguish between EST and ET. They are kind of the same to me, but it, fiat time zones. <laughs> exactly. So you you have to go. 
So thank you very much, Jameson, for participating this interview. I feel sorry for the people in the chat who asked questions and I did not pay attention to them. But maybe we can do another interview some other time, I guess. Maybe less than five years from now. Yes, let's do that. Not in five years. So thank you All once right. again. And I'll see you in another episode. I'll so see you in Riga, I hope. I'll be in Europe. Uh, I won't make it to Riga, though. <laughs> okay. Shop and Bit is the online store where you can buy anything with your Bitcoin. Choose between more than 800,000 products, book flights and hotels, and order everything else through the concierge service. With Shop and Bit, you can buy your weekly groceries, get the latest iPhone, upgrade your computer, buy something sexy for your new girlfriend, book a trip to El Salvador through the travel hacking service, and also grab a copy of the latest Bitcoin takeover magazine to read in the airplane. Everything is integrated with a familiar shopping experience that doesn't track you and deletes your data after the order gets completed. You also get a 3% discount if you pay in Bitcoin. Try Shopping Bit today and use promo code BTCTKVR for a 5 euro discount on your first order.